Hey, hey, Andy Neary here. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, think back to how you came upon this podcast. Maybe it was through a post, a share, or one of your own peers shared this podcast with you. I don't take any ads. I don't take any sponsorships. The only way this podcast grows is through word of mouth. So if you would be so kind to share this with a peer, with a teammate, with a friend, a family member, I would be forever grateful to you. This is how we impact more business professionals, and this is how this podcast grows. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, hey, welcome back to Bullpen Sessions Podcast. I am excited today to have Omar Arif join me to talk about alternative solutions and strategies for self-funding. Omar, welcome to the Bullpen Sessions. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. You bet. It's rare, by the way, that I get to have a bullpen session with a former pitcher, um, especially a pitcher that pitched in professional baseball uh, like you did. So I'm excited for this episode. Um, a lot of people know who you are in the industry, especially if they've attended the conferences around Benefits Pro and Health Rosetta and things like that. But I think we're going to have a fun episode today, um, letting people get to know your background a little bit prior to your insurance career, and then diving into you know alternative strategies that are out there for brokers who are looking to sell self-funded solutions to their clients. So before awesome. we dive into the expertise stuff, my friend, where are you from? I grew up in Mesquite, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas, just on the east side of town. Born and raised. Born and raised. And growing up, obviously, uh, you know, you grew up playing in Texas. You know, I remember growing up as a kid in the upper Midwest, Omar, a little jealous of guys like you because you got to play down in the south where it's warm all year. You got to play outside all year. Was baseball always a part of your life growing up? It was, um, starting with YMCA T-ball at age four, um, spring and summer every year until I was an adult. So yeah, I was, um, every sport under the sun until about middle school. Um, I got some bad grades in middle school. So my dad didn't let me play basketball. It was eighth grade. Um, and then I was just baseball and football through my freshman year in high school. Um, and I made the varsity as a freshman on the baseball team. So my, my varsity, uh, baseball coach said, Hey, I'm not going to make you quit football, but you need, you need to quit playing football. <laughs> kind of how that went. Yeah. It, what was it like? You know, I had a gentleman by the name of Chris Carter on the podcast a while back and, and he owns an agency in Houston, but played high school football in Texas. What was it like playing high school baseball in Texas, just given the girth of talent that existed, you know, just like the state of California or Florida? What was that like playing high school baseball, especially as a freshman on a varsity team? Yeah, I, um, I, I made the freshman as a varsity and, you know, I'm a 14, maybe a 15 year old kid playing with grown men. Um, and we had five or six guys on that team when I was a freshman that went on to play college baseball. A couple of them um, I actually followed from, from Poteet high school in Mesquite over to TCU. But I remember getting deep into the playoffs that year and seeing guys that were going to A&M guys that were going to Texas guys that were going to be in the big 12, you know, in the fall um, and thinking, wow, these guys are legitimate players. One guy even comes to mind, a guy named Jason Stokes from Coppell, Texas, he ended up being like a first or second round pick out of high school 
literally the week that we played his team in, in the playoffs. So that was as a, as a freshman, that was my first real experience to seeing the level of elite talent that was coming out of the DFW, specifically the DFW Metroplex. Um, I, I played at a four a high school where every year we had two, three, four guys um, moving on to the next level. So it was, um, you know, it was nice prep for, for division one sports. I was going to ask you standing on a mound as a freshman pitching against seniors. Cause there is such a, a growth that occurs for males, for boys between the ages of 14 to 18. Right. Can you go back and recall what it was like to stand on the mound as a freshman facing seniors? Well, it's funny because I didn't really pitch. We had, we had three or four really good seniors. Two of them were division one scholarship guys. So as a freshman, I didn't, I didn't hardly pitch at all. I played the outfield. Um, so I, yeah, I, I did both in high school. My, my sophomore year was when I really started when I became sort of one of the leaders on the team and a starting pitcher. And, and I do remember, I remember specific at bats from high school. Um, I'll give you a prime example. I was the opening day starter, my sophomore year in high school, this would have been 2001. We're facing Jesuit high school. Who's always loaded with, with really good baseball teams. The first hitter I face is a guy named Michael Holloman, who's a senior, and he's a big-time prospect going to Texas the next year. He ended up playing in the big leagues, so he, he, he worked out. He had a great baseball career. But I remember um, I struck him out on a backdoor 3-2 breaking ball, first, first hitter of the game. And, and that was the moment I was like, all right, I, you know, I can do this. I'm, I'm on these guys' level. Uh, and I actually, believe it or not, I threw a no-hitter that game my first varsity start as a sophomore on the mound. Um, so yeah, I, I remember weird things like that. I remember at bats from guys that I faced in high school and college. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. That's one awesome, unbelievable that your first true varsity start ended up with a no hitter. I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of like Disney like storylines there, but even again, doing it, playing at, against the talent you did play against in Texas is pretty amazing. Again, I look at growing up in Wisconsin, right? Like, we, if back in 1996, when I graduated from high school, if we had one guy in the state go big time D1, it was a big deal. And by big time D1, I'm talking about like the Big Ten. Yeah. And so for you to play against teams every week that probably had two or three guys going D1, just it sets the tone of what you expect of yourself. Because you went on to play college baseball at Texas Christian TCU. And I, you know, playing at a high level like that at a program that's been in the college world series, what was that like for you? Did you see a big shift when you went from pitching at the high school level to pitching at Texas Christian, one of the top programs in the country? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter how good a high school ball you play. There's a massive jump when you go from any, any level of varsity baseball to the division one level. And it's, there are guys in high school that have that level of talent, but you might face one or two guys per team versus every guy on a college team has that level of talent. And so it's, it is a, it is a big jump and it was a huge adjustment for me because um, I, I was, I was a hard worker in high school and I was more talented than most of the guys I came across, but then you step up to that next level and it's like, you're not special. 
everybody's got this level of talent or more. So now what are you going to do to um, separate yourself? And it's, it's hard. It's, and it's not just hard to get there physically. It's, it's harder to get over that mentally. It's like, I don't have any advantage on any of these other guys, guys on my own team that I'm competing for playing time for. And, and the guys on the other team who are trying to beat us. Um, yeah, it's, it's different. And it was, um, it was a shock to me because, you know, I, I had some struggles my first couple of years in, in, in college. I, I got hurt my freshman year. And then my second year, I'm trying to have a bounce back year as a sophomore. And our coaches had, they brought in the top, I think we had like a top five recruiting class in the whole country that year. So there's some just studs coming in behind me that are now competing for time. And I frankly just got buried behind some guys that were better than me as a sophomore. So I go two whole years in college without hardly seeing the playing field. Yeah, that's a, that story resonates because that happened to me my sophomore year. Um, not so much having a stud class come in, but I definitely did not perform the way I wanted to my sophomore year. My sophomore year was by far my worst year at, at, at UW-Milwaukee. Where I actually thought about transferring or quitting after that. It was so bad that year. Walk us through, though. Here's what I'd love for you to do, because I think you and I are probably very aligned with this. A lot of people see a pitcher. And, and for those who haven't seen you throw your southpaw, they see the pitcher throwing on the mound inside the lines during the game. But walk us through what you had to do outside the lines, off the field, to make sure you are prepared to show up on the field for, for your start or even to be in the bullpen and be effective. Because I think a lot of casual fans overlook, they see a pitcher, oh, a pitcher doesn't really have to be an athlete. They can just get out and throw. No, there's a lot that goes into pitching off the field. Walk, through, walk us through your routine a little bit. Yeah, I was, I was always a runner. I, I forced myself to run in high school to get myself in cardiovascular shape. And so in, in college, it was a little bit easier for me to get through some of the workouts that we did um, back then. But yeah, to pitch, it, it, well, there's, there's really two paths. If you're a starter, you know when you're going to pitch and you pitch once a week and, and there's a whole protocol for what to do during your, your downtime when you're not pitching in a game. Versus being a reliever where you've got to be ready almost every night and you've got to be ready. You've got to make sure that your body is able to bounce back from, you know, pitching on Friday night to turning around and doing it again on Saturday afternoon, even if it's just for an inning. Um, so, so for me, it was always just about taking care of my body, uh, making sure I was icing after I was done pitching, making sure I was running to keep circulation going so I could repair my body quicker. And then just being smart about when I was hitting the weight room and why. I think that's one of the things that's changed so much in the game of baseball over the last 15 years is, you know, when I was in high school and college, our strength and conditioning coaches were football coaches and they didn't always have the best protocols for base baseball specific movements. And, and nowadays you, you see very hyper specific training regimens for, for pitchers, um, which is to me, which is why a lot of guys are, are throwing harder than they've ever thrown. I mean, you look at the game 15 years ago versus today, it's, it's completely different. Most pitchers are pitching away from contact, not to it. They're throwing harder and, and guys are stronger where like late nineties, early two thousands, um, you know, a lot of hitters were doing steroids so they could make the ball fly. Well, now nobody's on steroids, but the ball flies farther. So you have these really strong guys that can hit the ball off the end of the bat and it will still fly out of the yard. And so you have, you know, pitchers trying to throw hundred miles an hour with 
88 mile an hour sliders so they can they can miss bats. Yeah, I've had it amazes me how hard pitchers throw today on average. You know, Crazy. I feel like every reliever coming out of the bullpen's 96 to 100. And yeah, they they are. I mean, I when I was when I was in college, I was a mid 80s guy. If I was coming out of the pen and a little more max effort, I'd be in the upper 80s. I mean, I I never in my career threw a fastball harder than 91 miles an hour. And now nowadays, 91 miles an hour is table stakes. Really. While you were at TCU, did you guys, did you get the chance to play in any college world series? We didn't. So okay. we were, we made a regional every year that I was there and we're knocked out of every regional we played in. So my freshman year, we went down to UT, Texas hosted a regional. They beat us. Uh, my sophomore year, we were at Baylor. They had a really strong team in 05. They beat us. Uh, my junior year, we went to OU and and got beat by OU in 06. Um, and I actually I actually transferred after my third season at TCU. I, I transferred to Long Beach State in California. And when I was at Long Beach, we hosted a regional. I was a senior, and I thought, all right, cool. This is the year we, we make it. We had a solid team, and we got knocked out by UCLA that year. So all four seasons, we were out in the regional. So I'm curious. I got two questions about that. Number one, what led you to transfer your senior? Because transfers today are a lot more abundant. There's a lot more of them today than we've ever seen. So what what caused you to go to Long Beach? And then for the people who don't know, Long Beach State is known as the Dirtbags. The Dirtbags, so yeah. How did that name come about? And what was it like to play for the program? So what? let's start with what led to the transfer. Um, so yeah, I loved my time at TCU. I, um, I had nothing bad to say about the program. I still, still root for them, still love Horn Frog football. Um, I just, for me, I just needed a fresh start. Like I mentioned, I, I pretty much sat the bench for two straight years at TCU. My junior year, I had an okay season. Um, but I didn't, I didn't get drafted and that was my goal. My whole life, that was my goal was to, to be a major league baseball player. And I got drafted out of high school by the Houston Astros and I, didn't I I've wanted to go to school. I wasn't willing to forego school because I was drafted late and um, I, I wanted to get the experience of college. So, but you're draft eligible again after your junior season and I didn't get drafted and I just felt like I needed a fresh start. It was nothing that, you know, anybody did wrong. My, me or the coaches or anybody, it, it's just one of those things where I needed a fresh start. And at the time you could transfer without any sort of, having to sit out of here. So in, in football at the time, you had to sit out of here before you could play. That wasn't the case in baseball. So I could transfer and play right away. And so I played summer ball with the second baseman from Long Beach State, a guy named Matt Klein. And Matt was like, hey, man, we, you know, we lost our entire weekend rotation to the draft. Why don't you transfer out to, to Long Beach State and play with us? Uh, so that's kind of how that move happened. And I, I went, I took a visit out there that summer really liked the coaches, really liked the campus uh, and, and made the move. And it, and it worked out really well. I, I got exactly what I wanted. I had a great senior season. Um, I got drafted by the Arizona Diamondbacks. So I got to continue my career and it all worked out for everybody. I love that. You know, I'm curious. So again, the, the sports junkie in me wants, would love to know what's behind the name, the Dirtbags, because they have the nickname, the Dirtbags. Yeah. Um, so the school is actually called the Long Beach State 49ers. So the Dirtbags is like an unofficial name specific to the baseball team. And that came about in, in the 90s when there was a there was a head coach uh, at the time named Dave Snow, 
pretty pretty well known college baseball coach took them to their first few World Series in the nineties. And Dave was an old school guy, just stickler on playing hard and being tough. And that nickname just spawned from his attitude that he implemented on his teams. They were just known as these, you know, gritty, tough, dirty guys. Um, not dirty players, but just, you know, these hard nosed type of guys. Like think about your Pete Rose types that just play hard all the time. Um, and, and that's sort of how they got the unofficial nickname of the dirtbag and it's stuck. Yeah. And there's been some amazing players that have come out of Long Beach, Jason Giambi, Tulowitzki, uh, Evan Longoria. I mean, yeah, it's, it's produced the Weaver, one of the Weavers. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. The, the Jerry goes on and on. Um, well, I'm curious. This is, I want to make this very um, valuable for our listeners. And, you know, something I see a lot these days in our industry is what I call it the advisor transfer portal. They go work, <laughs> they go work, they go work for an agency and they work for two years because they have a salary guarantee. And then when that salary is about to come, uh, you know, go away, they, they jump to the next agency to get the next salary guarantee. It's like this transfer portal. And I've always argued that's great. The problem is if you're not changing, nothing is going to change. You can't just change your agency and think things are going to change for you. When you made that transfer from TCU to Long Beach to get that fresh start, I'm curious to know, was there anything you did to make sure you showed up differently with this fresh start? Uh, that's a great question. And, and the answer is yes. Um, for me, it was just a complete mental reset um, I had always done all the things to make sure that I was physically prepared. Um, but for me, it was, it was a, a, a mental reset to get me going. And I made a few mechanical adjustments in my delivery and mentally, I just, I, I said, okay, this is, this is essentially it. This is your senior season. If this doesn't go well, it, your, your, your baseball career is over. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I still remember this vividly, but I, we had the number one strength of schedule in the country that year. Long Beach State did. So my first I, – I, and I had to fight just to get a starting job at Long Beach. But my first five starts were USC, Texas, Rice, uh, Cal, Wichita State, Arizona State, Cal State Fullerton, UC Irvine. I mean, one those, are the first, those are the first eight games of the season. And, and so – you know, I knew going in that it was going to be a challenge and I, and I needed to challenge myself in that way. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think I was a completely different guy when I made that move and I, and I needed to sort of evolve and, and become better. That's, that's awesome. I, I want people to hear that because, you know, if you're going to make a change, especially in our industry, the change is one thing, but you got to look in the mirror and say, okay, as I make this change, maybe it's a fresh start what are you going to do to change? Cause nothing is going, your results will not change unless you make your own adjustments. So I, I, I love the fact you said that. So here you are, you're playing pro baseball. Here's what I'd love to know. You're in the Diamondbacks organization. Was there a moment because you spent four years playing college baseball? Was there a moment in the minors where you're like, you may have had this expectation that minor league baseball is this entirely different step up, but did you have the moment where you're like, man, Playing college ball in some cases was as competitive as where I'm playing right now in minor league baseball, especially given where you were playing. Hi, it's Andy Neary, and thank you for listening to the Bullpen Sessions podcast. Did you know the ideas shared on this show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you're an insurance professional and you want to turn your credibility into consistent client acquisition, 
Visit CompleteGameConsulting.com and schedule a free strategy call. Again, that's CompleteGameConsulting.com to request your free strategy call. All right, let's jump back into today's podcast episode. Yeah, I mean, um, you can see that to some extent in in the lower ranks of, of the minor leagues. Like where I was my first um, year, I was with the Yakima Bears in the Northwest League. Uh, it's a short season A ball league, and and you could tell um, there was there was some guys in that league that were maybe 18, 19 year old guys who were just ridiculously talented, but weren't the polished player that you you might have seen in the college ranks. So, um, and, and then you know on the flip side of that, they were absolutely the, the the college studs there too. So I'd say overall the talent level went went up but not by much. It wasn't like the jump from high school to college, the jump from college to minor league ball was a smaller jump. Um, but it was still, still a definite step up for sure. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask because I know I had that moment. I can remember when I played in short season ball in Montana, all of our catchers at that level were former high school catchers. They did not, they got drafted out of high school. And as a yep. pitcher, one thing I noticed right away is like, these guys don't want to call a curveball with a guy on third. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you, and, and, you know, you're like, okay, but I, this is what I'm used to. And just that playing with guys who are still 18, 19 years old versus being used to playing with 21, 22 year old teammates in college, I think for me made a difference as well when it came to pitching. Yeah. I mean, we had a kid from the Dominican on my a ball team named Johan Pimentel and he was, he, he didn't speak any English. He had just turned 18 years old. I mean, enormously talented, but maybe not quite ready to play with, uh, you know, American kids who were 23 years old and played four years of division one college. He, he, he didn't have, he didn't have the polish of, of managing a game at the catcher position, but they were going to throw him in there because he just had enormous talent and they knew that he would develop. And that's, you know, that's why there is a minor league. You, you develop raw talent. And I, and I saw that, I saw that in spring training, really, when you go to spring training, um, and, and you're a left-handed pitcher and you see a dozen other left-handed pitchers and they're, you know, they're taller than you and their shoulders are this wide. It's uh, yeah. It's the aha moment. Like, Oh God, if I'm going to ever make it to the big leagues, I'm going to have to grind it out at every single level and prove myself all the way up. Um, and that's ultimately why I, I hung them up because I, you know, I frankly didn't like minor league baseball nearly as much as I like college ball. And I knew that, just to have a chance at getting to the top. Um, it was going to take me five or six years. And and I just, I knew it was, it was time to do something else. For the sake of not losing our listeners, we could, I could go on all, all about <laughs> baseball, but let's, let's transition now quick to your, not quick, but transition to your professional career. But here's where I want to start. I want to connect the two. Baseball players are accused of being hyper superstitious and very routine driven people. I know I am. When you look back at your baseball career, Omar, from a routine standpoint, is there anything you applied in baseball from a routine that you still apply today in your business? Um, interesting. I'd have to give that some thought because I'm sure there is that I, I'm sure there's some things that I do. Um, maybe subconsciously that I don't really think about. I do have some lucky socks that I like to wear. Um, but I, you know, I am a routine driven guy. I get up at the same time every day. I work out at the same time when I'm in town. Um, I like to 
book my travel in the same manner over and over. Um, I have the same talk tracks all the time. So yeah, I am very much a routine driven person. Um, I don't know if that comes from baseball or if it's just my personality, but um, I'm, I'm definitely routine oriented. And I'm definitely superstitious. Yeah. I think I'd that's love what, not to be. That's where I was going. Uh, that's what I was getting at was it probably not the same routines, but if you go back to your starts in college at TCU, I bet you had a routine that superstitiously you knew if you did, you were going to be the best frame of mind. You probably apply that same concept or mindset to how you prepare yourself for the field of play called work to make sure you're showing up at your best every day. I, I know I, I, I'm pretty regimented that way. And I, yeah. I, kinda, I bring it back to my starts at UW-Milwaukee. Like I remember exactly what I did starting about an hour before the game to make sure I was ready to roll on the mound. It's kind of the same concept now, except I'm showing up for work. Yeah. I mean, well, that's a good point you bring up because when I was in college, um, that was when a lot of, a lot of college coaches were buying into hiring mental coaches, like sports psychologists for their team. And, and we had a world when I was at long, we had one at TCU, but um, when I was at long beach, we had a world renowned, um, baseball sports psychologist named Ken Ravisa. He wrote a book called Heads Up Baseball. And he was he was real big on visual visualization and, and and thinking things through before they happen. And I still do that today in business. I still, if I'm going into to a presentation and I know that I'm going to be talking to the broker and the broker's bringing me in to talk to the CFO and the HR director, then I'm I'm going through that conversation in my mind three or four times before it ever happens so that I'm prepared for any sort of any sort of curveballs, so to speak, that may come up. Yeah, no, I, I think that's any athlete listening into this can resonate with that. No matter what yeah. sport you played, you probably had a routine that got you ready. And I'm willing to bet, especially if they're an athlete who played at a high level college or pro, they probably leverage some form of similar routine today to get themselves ready um, every single day. So yeah, you have to. Absolutely. And, and, and it's overlooked. I think it sounds simple and uh, in practice, but not followed by everybody. So, well, let's let's dive into what you're doing today. You're chief growth officer of ClaimDoc. And ClaimDoc, you know, you're in the medical claim auditing space focus, with a focus on reference-based pricing. And, you know, you play in a world where talk about routine a lot of businesses, a lot of advisors still are not diving into cost containment or self-funding out of sometimes sometimes fear. Um, I'll, I'll say sometimes laziness and sometimes just not wanting to change the way they do things. So let's start with just the, the topic of reference-based pricing. Why do you think reference-based pricing has been given such a I guess you could say a bad name by some people because the second they hear RVP, they're like, Nope, don't even want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, it, it's a combination of things. It's, um, you know, maybe some, some bad vendors or people that have done it the wrong way in the past, or, you know, sales guys like me who have promised things they can't deliver on. Um, it, it, you can't put your finger on one thing, but, but the overarching theme is that RBP is, is difficult to execute on. And if you don't have buy-in all the way up and down the chain of command from the broker level to the client level to the vendor level, like if, if everybody's not working lockstep together, 
it's it's going to fall flat. I mean, I've, I've seen it too many times. Claim dot, we're not perfect. It's happened to us. Um, you know, it's a it's a beautiful program if executed properly and it saves a ton of money and it can actually be a better member experience if done right. Um, but if done wrong, it leaves everybody with a sour taste in their mouth. And, and that's why you sort of hear the horror stories about what this vendor or that vendor did and why it doesn't work or why a broker will never do it or, you know, what this hospital did in a certain market. Um, you know, you, you have to have a, a whole group of people pulling on the same side of the rope to make it work. And, and going back to your question about, you know, why it still hasn't grown or employers maybe even being lazy. I, I think that that exists too, because I got in this business in 2008. And if you look at, you know, the U S economy as a whole, since 2008, it was at the bottom. Like real estate had just melted down. The financial sector was in a huge crisis, but since 2008, the U S economy has been pretty good. Uh, you know, certain sectors have had their dips, but, but overall it's been pretty good. I think most economists would agree. So I think what's happened is employers have just kicked the can down the road because I got in this business 15 years ago and people were talking about how healthcare costs were out of control then. And what's changed in the last 15 years? I mean, nothing really. It's still the same old story. I heard a stat the other day that RBP comprised of 4% of the market. I think that's even high. I don't think we're even 4% of the group of the group market. Um, so I, I think there's green pastures for us in the next three to five years but we'll see how things shake out. I think you bring up a really relevant point, though. Since 2008, probably up until at least last year, we've had one of the greatest economies we've, we've ever experienced. Yeah. Well, guess what? Things have changed. We're, we're yeah. now facing a very different economic future. And I think you're going to have more companies realize they have to look at different things right now because we are staring at a in some cases, some people feel a bleak future right now economically. And so with that in mind, let's use this topic to really educate advisors on how to have a better conversation about reference-based pricing because they are the conduit of helping employers make those decisions. So let's start right here. Be naive to assume, Omar, everybody knows what reference-based pricing is. Let's start right there. What is reference-based pricing? Yeah. Um, Reference-based pricing is a payment mechanism to ensure fair and reasonable payments from a self-funded health plan. Um, you know, we, we've sort of gotten away from the term RBP and we, we bill ourselves more as a complete network replacement solution. So think of it as pulling off the Blue Cross or the United logo on the ID card and slapping on a claim doc logo and using that to do everything needed to replace a network. So it's not just the repricing of claims. It's also all the member advocacy, the provider relations, the clinical bill auditing, the legal component, all of the things you need to do to replace a network. That's what, that's what we try to do. Um, so, so RBP is just one small component to our overall strategy of replacing managed care networks. So I hear what you just said. Okay, so slap, replace the Blue Cross logo, slap down the claims doc logo, but I'm an employer, Omar. My employees love that Blue Cross Blue Shield logo. Yeah. How, how does, how does reference based pricing work? How does RBP work? I hear you say network replacement, and that's scary, right? To the, the typical decision maker, that's scary because I'm afraid 
that's going to creep out my employees. But mm-hmm. we know it's not technically as scary as it should be. So how does reference-based pricing work? Yeah, so it depends on the model. The way our version of reference-based pricing works is we do a ton of upfront education with the decision makers, showing them the financial outcomes of what our product is going to deliver. And then we get into the nuts and bolts of how we make the member experience palatable when there is no Blue Cross logo on the ID card. So how we execute that, it starts prior to open enrollment. Um, We'll get a utilization report from the group. So we'll see, okay, here are the top 20 providers that have a high volume of, of patients that are members of this plan that see them. And we'll proactively reach out to those top providers. We also give... Um, we also give the members a chance to nominate their providers during open enrollment. So we go to the membership. And by the way, we assist with all open enrollment strategy and communication along with the broker and HR. So we'll go to the membership and help with group meetings and say, hey, look, we're doing something drastically different. Here's how it's going to work. If you participate on the plan, give us a list of the docs you already see so we can proactively reach out to those folks and make sure that they're going to accept our new program. And so you think of it as, we don't call it a network, but think of it as building a custom network for each employer that we bring on the books. And we do this on several thousand life groups. We have a full team of member advocates that do this outreach. And that does a couple things for us. It makes the transition from Blue Cross to an RVP plan a lot smoother. And it gets the members of the plan familiar with who ClaimDoc is and what we're there to support. So now when, you know, Betty Sue, who has been on Blue Cross for 15 years and she has four or five doctors that she sees regularly because she's got a couple different issues that she's got to deal with. When, when we're able to take care of her prior to the effective date and make sure that she can still go see all of her providers that she needs to see, that quiets the majority of the noise in moving from a traditional PPO HMO network to, to an open access program. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we make that shift a little bit easier is, is we have member advocacy there to proactively help get people access to the providers that they want to see and also let them know that we're here to support them with any other sort of problems that may come up or questions that they have around their health plan. Now I made my own mistake because I, I, I teach people you got to talk about the problem first before you can offer the solution. We went right into the solution. Let's let's get back to the problem for a second. Why is our, why is RBP even necessary, Omar? Like why do we yeah. need reference based pricing? Because I give my employees this medical ID card, they go to the doctor, and a claim gets paid. What? Why do I need something like reference based pricing? Yeah, you you got me out of order too. I always start with the problem, so. The biggest problem that we see is that if you go to a facility, whether it's an inpatient or an outpatient service, and you're on a traditional network plan, whether it's Blue Cross or Kaiser or United or a regional PPO, you are likely paying over three times Medicare for that same service. Okay. So when I go to a CFO of a 500 person business and I say, hey, you're paying three times what Uncle Sam's paying for the same service. How do you like that? They're like, what are you talking about? So the the games that are being played between the carrier-owned networks and the large health systems, um, I mean, it predates Obamacare, but but 
I think Obamacare has accelerated that to a certain extent because you have minimum loss ratios that cap the profits of large carriers. And then you have unlimited lifetime maximums. And those those two things may sound good, but they've they've disincentivized the carriers from controlling costs for their members or or their plans, rather. And so I, I find it interesting that, you know, if. If a if a carrier is hired by Medicare to manage Medicare in a certain pop in a certain geography for a population, they can do a great job of cost containment because they're incentivized to by the federal government. But when they're hired by private industry, when they're hired by employers in that same geography in that same community, their networks don't have any sort of incentive uh, incentive to control costs for those employers. So they simply do not care. They actually want costs to go up because. They can only drop 15% to the bottom line. And so the only way to increase profits is to make the top line go up. And that all comes at the back of, of the employer and the member. Um, and so going back to your question, why is RVP needed? Somebody has to put some guardrails on large claims. I mean, this RVP is not, um, doesn't exist to pick a fight with the physician. RVP exists to control out of control spending at the facility level. So what we do to make that work for our plans is we audit facility claims and we reprice them on a more fair metric. That's it. I love how you said it, putting guardrails around large claims. You're not in the business of denying claims. You're just in the business of saying, Hey, what you're charging for that claim is a little egregious. Let's come to a more reasonable agreement and charge something that's a little more realistic. Yeah. And those, those metrics, um, the, the benchmarks that we look at are they're public data and there's a ton of that data. So we look at Medicare and we look at the hospital's own self-reported cost because every, every healthcare provider that accepts Medicare has to report their cost of services to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So we know what that data is. And we look at those two metrics, we mark them up, we decide which of those two metrics on this particular claim would have been greater, and we pay the higher of the two. And that goes for every line item on a claim. And so it's really hard for a provider to say that we paid them unfairly when we guaranteed them a profit on that particular claim. When done right, what kind of savings are you talking about here? When RBP is implemented the, the right way, <clears throat> communicated effectively, works the way it's supposed to, what, what kind of savings are you guys generating for employers? Yeah, that, that number is getting bigger by the day. We Traditionally, we've said 30 35%. Um, last year, we just finished a, an exhaustive study on our book of business from last year. So on our 2022 block of business, new business coming in, we saved our clients 43% compared to the PPO market. Wow. That's yeah. Crazy. And that's I hear that number again, 43% compared to the PPO market. And that's not just Omar, the sales guy telling you that that's something that we'll put in writing that we have it in writing. That's impressive. Well, I know a fear that comes up, Omar, I would love for you to address if you can. Hey man, this sounds great. Whether you're an advisor hearing this or a company, it sounds great. But I've heard, too, with reference-based correct pricing comes this big, big risk of balance billing. That all of a sudden, if we implement this program or I implement this for one of my clients, they're going to start, their employees are going to start getting hammered with balance bills, which means the doctors are now billing them for the difference in what your plan accepted and what they wanted to charge. How would you address that concern? 
Yeah, there, there's a number of ways. One is, is balance bills already happening in, in the PPO world all the time. I mean, the federal government just put in legislation to stop some of it. It's called the No Surprises Act. Um, so it's, it's not a whole lot different than what you would see in, in the world of traditional plans anyways. Our, our version of RBP comes with full balance bill protection, meaning, uh, and not just balance bill protection, but appeal management as well for the plan. So if there's any sort of dispute on a claim, whether a hospital is appealing back to the plan or whether the hospital is billing a member, it's claim docs, claim docs responsibility to, to manage that dispute. And so for the life of every claim, we protect the plan and its members from any sort of predatory billing practices done by the hospital, whether that's a balanced bill, whether it's collections, credit impairments, or litigation. I mean, we will fight a health system all the way through a jury trial if need be to make a claim go away. And in our 10-year history, we've we've never lost a court case. That's, that's um, I want I want people to hear that because I think this is what's keeping advisors away from talking about this more. Yeah. I mean, we're the we're the only we're the only vendor that I'm aware of that provides legal defense with in-house counsel. So literally our our member advocates and our balance bill support team, they sit in pods together right next to our legal team. So we have a really good pulse on all of our clients at any given time, which is is a huge value add. So here's what I want would love you. The last question I would love to ask about this, and I want you to take an unbiased approach if you can here. So if I'm an advisor listening in right now saying, okay, I know it's time I bring better advice to my clients. And and let's be clear to execute, to leverage reference-based pricing, the group has to be self-funded. Got to start there. Yeah. Great. Group is self-funded. I want to start having this conversation. Two questions pop up I'd love for you to answer. Number one, how to how do I effectively evaluate RBP vendors? That's where I want you to take the unbiased approach. But number two, how do I even bring this conversation up with my clients in the first place? Yeah. Um, the brokers that have taken the time to dig in and really understand RBP and evaluate vendors have a massive leg up on those who have not. Um, how to do it is going to be up to each advisor themselves as far as how they retain information. We invite brokers out to our home office all the time because we want you to see our operation. We want you to understand, you know, how our claims flow process works, how we hold the member's hand through difficult, challenging issues, the, the whole thing. I mean, we're, completely transparent with the way we run our operation. So we would prefer that. Um, for, for brokers that haven't done it before, they, they, they really need to know who they're dealing with. And you, you got to make sure that if you're taking your client from, you know, Anthem Blue Cross to an RBP solution, it can't be some garage band RBP solution that doesn't have everything figured out. Um, and so I know every broker has different resources that they, that are managed at the corporate level, but we've, um, gone heavy into educating from the top down at the broker level to make sure that we're, you know, educating a whole number of brokers in certain regions at certain brokers. So I, I would say, you know, the consultants that work for big houses, they probably have those resources internally that they don't even know about. And then for the, for the independent guys and gals that are out there, it's, you know, good old fashioned picking up the phone and, and talking to the reps out there that can sort of guide you through the process 
I, I pride myself on being a resource for, for the brokers that I work with, even if it means I lose a piece of business. I've, I've, it's happened to me before. Um, so I've, I've actually gone as far as recommending competitors to talk to. Um, so they can call me if they want. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on today because I think this is a topic that's still, as you said, less than 4% of the employers in America leverage reference-based pricing as part of their health insurance strategy. And there's there's a very big untapped market out there for a solution like this. And when done right, it can be beautiful. You said 43% on average, you're saving off the PPO networks, but it's got to be done right. And I think a lot of brokers and employers have this inherent fear of bringing this topic up in the first place. So I'm glad we had a conversation about, hey, it's not as scary as you think it is. You do have to implement it the right way. Here are some things you can do to do it. But man, when you do it right, not only are you gonna help your clients save significant dollars, you, the advisor, are gonna look like a hero. Absolutely, no doubt. So I would love to wrap this episode up, Omar, with just some rapid fire for you, if you don't mind. Okay. So I'm gonna ask you some questions. <laughs> Just give me the answer, the first answer that comes to mind. And we're going to have a little fun with this just so we can let people continue to get to know you a little bit more. Right. So I'm a pitcher. I was not given the size or the the, the speed, the, the, the lightning bolt of an arm from God. Omar <laughs> Arif, how tall are you? I am 5'11 and a quarter barefooted. That's You too, my friend, are not a prototypical pitcher size-wise. I'm six one on the on the roster. On the roster, of course you are, but you're a southpaw, so you have that advantage. All right, I know you answered this one already. I'm going to let you answer it again. What did your fastball top out at at its peak? Ninety one miles an hour. Nothing to write home about. All right, bottom of the ninth. You're about to throw a complete game. Two outs, full count. What's your go to pitch? Fastball down and away. Love that. Great pitch for a lefty, especially with the tail, right? Is there one batter, whether it was in college or pro ball, that you can remember facing that when you, when he stepped in the plate, you're like, I don't know what that is, but that's different. (laughs) Yeah, there was a bunch of guys. Um, There wasn't any one hitter in particular. It was always a a body type and a swing type. I tended to have problems with big right-handed hitters that had long swings um, because I didn't have an overpowering fastball. So they could always seem to get, even though they had a long swing, they could always seem to get to my fastball. And I was always hesitant to throw them a changeup because that long, again, that long swing, they could, you know, they could still catch it on the barrel. So I, I had trouble with big, powerful right-handed hitters that had long swings. Yeah, it's a good one. All right. Last question. Most people don't know this, but just last year, you actually came back to the game of baseball and pitched <laughs> for the country of Pakistan in the World Baseball Classic Qualifier. Number one, how was it? How was it to come back to the mound and represent a country playing baseball? But two, I got to know at age 39, I believe. What did, yeah, you, top, what did you top out at, at age 39? <laughs> oh, man, I don't. I think that the YouTube stream had a had a gun on us if i had to guess i would say probably 81 maybe um 82 maybe if i'm if i'm giving myself some credit um it was fun man you know my dad's from pakistan so they asked me to play uh i have a cousin who's eight or nine years younger than me that we you know we obviously never played growing up because he was so much younger but he's 
he's grown now. And so we got to play together for the first time and in front of our family and friends and um, represent our, our father's homeland. So it was, it was really cool. That's and awesome. that's a, that's a cricket country. So they're, they're, they're trying to get into, they're trying to get their young kids into baseball. So I think, you know, down the road, they could produce some pretty good baseball teams. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Well, Omar, if somebody wanted to reach out to you today uh, after listening to this episode and wanted to know more about reference-based pricing or claim doc, or maybe just your baseball career, what would be the easiest way to get in touch with you? Yeah, they can, they can find me on LinkedIn or, you know, my cell phone, 469-939-7286. They can call me. Um, they can get me through the claim doc website. My email is oarif at claim-doc.com. Um, no Facebook or, or Instagram for me, so you won't find me there, but, um, yeah, those, those are the ways. Definitely connect with you on LinkedIn. So Omar, thank you for taking the time to be here today. If you listened into this, uh, especially if you're in the health insurance industry, reference-based pricing is a very viable solution when educated properly and implemented effectively. So don't let the phrase RBP scare you or your clients away from doing um, something that could really help their bottom line and their employees and take Omar's advice on what you need to do, how you need to evaluate it and how you need to bring that conversation up to your clients. It's going to do you and them a lot of good. Be well. Thank you for taking the time to listen to today's podcast episode. Remember, if you found value in this episode, do me a favor, give it a like, share it, post about it, Go subscribe to make sure you get every episode from us every single week. And my only ask from you is that if you have anybody in your life, whether it be a teammate, a peer, family member, or a friend, please share this podcast with them. That's how we grow. We only grow through word of mouth. And I would be forever grateful if you take the time to do that. All right. Now, it's time for you to take what you learned, and it's time for you to go out and share your message with the world, execution, clarity, and consistency is everything. Be well.